This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. The Death Coach Tis midnight, how gloomy and dark By Jupiter there's not a star Tis fearful, tis awful And hark, what sound is that comes from afar? Still rolling and rumbling That sound makes nearer and nearer approach Do I tremble, or is it the ground? Lord save us, what is it? A coach, a coach, but that coach has no head, and the horses are headless as it. Of the driver the same may be said, and the passengers inside who sit. See the wheels, how they fly o'er the stones, and whirl as the whip it goes crack. Their spokes are of dead men's thigh bones, and the pole is the spine of the back. The hammer cloth, shabby display, is a pall rather mildewed by damps, and to light this strange coach on its way, two hollow skulls hang up for lamps. From the gloom of Rathcooney churchyard they dash down the hill of Glanmire, Pass Lola in gallop as hard as if horses were never to tire. With people thus headless, tis fun to drive in such furious career, since headlong their horses can't run, nor coachman be heady from beer. Very steep is the Tivoli Lane, but uphill to them is as down. Not for the charms of Wood Hill can detain these Dullahans rushing to town. Could they feel as I felt, in a song, a spell that forbade them depart? They'd a lingering visit prolong, and after their head lose their heart. No matter, tis past twelve o'clock. Through the streets they sweep on like wind. And taking the road to Black Rock, Cork City is soon left behind. Should they hurry thus reckless along to supper instead of to bed, the landlord will surely be wrong if he charge it as much ahead. Yet mine host may suppose them too poor to bring to his wealth an increase, as till now all who drove to his door possessed at least one crown apiece. Up the dead woman's hill they are rolled, 
Boring manner is quite out of sight. Ballon Temple they reach, and behold, as its churchyard they stop and alight. Who's there? said a voice from the ground. We've no room, for the place is quite full. Oh, room must be speedily found, for we come from the parish of Skull. Though Murphys and Crowleys appear on headstones of deep-lettered pride, though Scannels and Murleys lie here, Fitzgeralds and Toomeys beside, yet here for the night we lie down. Tomorrow we speed on the gale, for having no heads of our own, we seek the old head of Kinsale. Hello and welcome to Fireside of Horror, Part 3, the third edition. Uh, each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore, mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. But today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we have a break in our tradition to have our now yearly customs of uh, of. Halloween spooktaculars as for a change of pace we take either pieces of horror or gothic literature from Ireland or further afield we tell them and we have a chat about them to share in the good lore that the world has gone from not only from Ireland but from further afield as we are in this spooky season as we approach the Feast of Samhain where the dead and the living walk amongst each other. The first piece that we had there, the Death Coach, wonderfully collected for the very first time by the great folklorist T. Crofton Croker in 1825. This story um, or this piece of poetry is one that has been with me for years, but these books, uh, this which this came from, The Treasury of Irish Fairy and Folk Tales, although this piece can also be found in W.B. Yeats's Fairy and Folk Tales of Ireland and a few other sources, including original sources by T. Crofton Croker himself earlier to the time. The, these collections, while mostly containing folklore and folk tales, also contain a number of pieces of poetry such as this, but I had never thought as much to use it for poetry. And But using this book again a lot as I've been at home in Wicklow for the last couple of months and been using some of my more uh, heavy sources, shall we say, literally, uh, that I can't bring as much with me when I travel around. This was a piece that I found and thought it would be the most wonderful wonderful piece to open our Halloween special with. Before I continue any more chatting about it, all of the usual things, if you enjoy the podcast, you can follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard, share this episode on your story, share that you're listening to Fireside, spread the good name of the podcast. If you want to support in a more direct way, you can buy my book, Garden Sea, a neomyth of home, collecting uh, from the folklore, history, religion of Ireland, between written between here and California, um, it to create a new Neil myth of home uh, can be purchased in paperback from Headstuff or from Kindle on Amazon. All the links are in the description below. Uh, thank you so much to all of who continue to buy it. Um, I also want to give another plug shout out because 
next week i will be officially launching garden sea on november 3rd at 7 p.m uh, in the venue upstairs in the brand new wicklow town library as i said last week i know many of my listeners live further afield but if anyone on the off chance happens to be around please do come along it'll be lovely to see your faces there for a reading of some of the pieces from the book to launch it and hear the book as it's as it's meant to be to be heard heard out loud to be read out loud these pieces uh, so thank you to those who booked it as a free event, uh, but it is ticketed to give an idea of numbers. So tickets are available at Eventbrite. The link is in the description below as well, hopefully to see a few heads along. If you want to support the podcast and otherwise, you can join Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com for as little as five euro a month. Although you can pay more if you want to gain bonus access, bonus content from not just Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network. But to get back to the death coach, this piece came from... Our story last week, which was of the Headless Horseman, uh, an Irish tale of Adulahan of sorts, which is an Irish spiritual figure, an Irish Gothic figure, folklore of a headless horseman, essentially, but one who carries carries a, a head, his head under his arm. This is a different kind of Dulahan because this is a whole coach procession. Nobody has a head in this. The horseman doesn't have a head, the horses, the coach itself, the passengers, and just the wonderful detail here. That is a feature of the Dulahan, particularly is um, the spine, a human spine being used as a whip for the horses is one of the most wonderfully gothic images I've seen. And even the spokes on the wheels being thigh bones. He paints such a, there's such a great, you know, gothic horror to this story, but a great sense of humor as well. There are so many puns in it throughout this piece. We have headlong, their horses can't run. We have that the coachman can't be heady from beer. We have references to to places. It's all set around the Cork area around County Cork, similar to the Headless Horseman itself as well. We have a reference to the town of Skull. Um, we have uh, this wonderful line at the end, having no heads of our own, we seek the old head of Kinsale, the coastline, the beach, old head and County Mayo, just outside of Westport, is a place very dear to my own heart. The landlord charging per head, uh, possessed at least one crown apiece. It's filled with such a sense of, of fun and delight that it reminds me a lot in some ways of a kind of Irish version of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, another piece that is more associated for its macabre horror and, um, and eeriness, but which also has a huge amount of humor and wit in it this is an incredibly witty piece if you're a fan of a pun at all which i usually am not to be quite honest with you but this is a really rich delicious piece that is far more it's it's ballad structure makes it far more sing-song and far more about the tale of it but it also fills with such such gorgeous and joyous language as well that just serves the story and serves the images being created. So I hope you enjoyed that as a as an opening piece. But our main event for Fireside of Horror Part 3, we're going to have a couple of pieces. So we've had our first one. We're going to have a piece of prose and then another piece of poetry to close. This Death Coach also reminded me a lot of 
the Emily Dickinson poem, uh, it, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, He Kindly Stopped for Me, which has a similar death coach in it and also has a sense of gothic humor pervading it as well that must have been, and this wouldn't have been at a too dissimilar time. This was first collected around 1825 and Emily Dickinson was born 1830. So as we're entering now, we're in the early stages of the Victorian era, or just before the uh, Victorian era begins, around uh, 1835, 1837, I think. And like... Th- Gothic literature as a whole belongs to the Victorian area. That is where there was this huge obsession with death and the supernatural and the idea, many of our contemporary ideas of ghosts and many of our great contemporary novels of of the horror genre or the ones that founded the horror genre, these all belong to the Victorians. The Victorians were completely obsessed with this idea of death and everything that was eerie and spooky. So Frankenstein, Dracula, the Raven again, all of this belongs. So this is early. The death coach is quite early for that. But uh, Dickinson then leads into that as well. And it's all in this period just before, you know, leading up to the Edwardian and into World War One, where there was this sense of macabre malaise throughout society and most of all in Victorian England. But speaking of Victorian literature, uh, but from further afield from over in the US, um, I did tease this last week as well, so this won't be as much of a big reveal for those who listened to last week's episode. But the Headless Horseman from last week just got me thinking about the the great Headless Horseman tale um, of all, of all uh, literature, which is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow a short story by the American writer Washington Irving. For those unfamiliar, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow tells the story of Ichabod Crane, who is a school teacher who is invited to the original, originally a Dutch settlement uh, townland known as Sleepy Hollow. But when Ichabod arrives, he is a very superstitious man and he starts to hear stories around the town of an eerie quality to it and of some of the spectres that may haunt the town. Ichabod particularly hears tell of the legend of a Hessian Dutch soldier who had lost his head in a war when a cannonball fired and decapitated him. And the ghost of this headless horseman supposedly still uh, haunts this, the, the hollow, haunts Sleepy Hollow. So Ichabod falls in love with this young woman named Katrina von Tussle, but he is, he is contested, he is um, challenged to her in terms of her affection by a rival named Brom Bones. And after Ichabod proposes to, or proposes to Katrina, he is rebuked. And on his way home, dark in Sleepy Hollow, the following occurs. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homeward, along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above Tarrytown, and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon. 
The hour was as dismal as himself. Far below him, the Tappan Zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop riding quietly at anchor under the land. In the dead hush of midnight, he could hear even the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson, but it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock accidentally awakened would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills, but it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate Andre, who had been taken prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake, and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning, and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About two hundred yards from a tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen known by the name of Wiley's Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over the stream. 
On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts matted thick with wild grapevines threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre was captured, and under the covert of those chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeomen concealed who surprised him. This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge, with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment... A plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen, black, and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveller. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still, there was no answer. Once more he cudgelled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and shutting his eye, broke forth with involuntary fervour into a psalm tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along on the blind side of old Gunpowder, who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones with the galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened the horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. 
His heart began to sink within him. He endeavoured to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pernicious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveller in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip. But the spectre started full with jump. Away then they dashed, through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off to Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn and plunged headlong down the hill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow, shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge famous in Goblin story, and just beyond swells the green knoll on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet... The panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase. But just as he had got halfway through the hollow, the girths of his saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavoured to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment the terror of Hans van Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle, and this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskillful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bone's ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs, and old gunpowder sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side, and now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him, Ichabod endeavoured to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. 
he was tumbled headlong into the dust and gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning the old horse was found without his saddle and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle, trampled in the dirt, the tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented in the road, and evidently at furious speed were traced to the bridge beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook where the water ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. Hans van Ripper, an executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stockings for the neck, a pair of two of worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog's ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-tellings, in which last was a sheet of fool's cap, much scribbled and blotted in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honour of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scroll were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans Van Ripper, who from the time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good come of this same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, and he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before, he must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brower, of Bones, and of whole budget of others were called to mind, and when they had diligently considered them all, had compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor, and in nobody's debt, Nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true, an old farmer, who had been down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was recovered, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, and that he had left the neighborhood, partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress. 
that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judge of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means, and it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse, being deserted, soon fell to decay, and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue, and the ploughboy, loitering homeward of a still summer evening, has often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm-tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. The End winning Spice Bags podcast is back with season four. You can expect the same mix of staple chats with me, Dee Laffin, Blanca Valencia, and Mei Chin, and deep dives into countries, cuisines, conversations with people from the international community of food in Ireland. Look forward to listening to episodes about shopping, about cakes, Argentina, Nigeria, plus an episode to celebrate the launch of our cookbook, Blast Books Soup. So tune in to us wherever you access your podcasts or headstuffpodcast.com. And there we have the tale of Sleepy Hollow. Well, about the last five or six pages of the story of Sleepy Hollow, it's um, it's about a 35 to 40 page story, I think, in the, the version I was adapting. I'm not adapting, just reading. I'll put a link to it in the description below. Uh, it can be found in any collection of short stories by Washington Irving. Um, but it was a case where... Usually, you know, when I've been doing a section from Frankenstein or Dracula or did a picture of Dorian Gray last year in other Fireside of Horrors, it's been a case of reading a section of it. But because this was a shorter story and because I feel, I hope people were quite clear with just a little bit of context I gave at the beginning, I thought everything was there because it is this one encounter this one major encounter that Ichabod has and everything is built up to it. And I think everything is there in the wonderfully, wonderfully rich, dense way that Washington Irving writes his prose that is nonetheless incredibly clear. Everything has a wonderfully qualifying phrase, like wonderful similes to it. And just the the atmosphere that he conjures and the fear that he puts in his hero is so wonderful. And 
so my two main understandings of Sleepy Hollow, having never read the story itself before researching it for the podcast, um, are from the two, I suppose, the two most major adaptations, to my knowledge, of the story, which are uh, the tales of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, uh, the Walt Disney movie, and Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton movie. And one I've seen quite recently and one I haven't seen in a long time. So to talk about uh, the Disney version first. So this was still in like the early 1950s, maybe late. Maybe it might be it's either like 49 or 52. I think they made it. Uh, it was still when Disney had like no money. When they had been completely bankrupt between some financial disasters and Big Bad World War Two, That they were still making what were known as package movies. Which were a series of movies they did where they were all just little shorts. So you had Make Mine Music, Melody Time, Fun and Fancy Free. And you have Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Which is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and The Wind and the Willows. And probably of those two, Disney's version of The Wind and the Willows is probably much more famous and as enjoyed more and they're both wonderful to be honest and the legend of ichabod and mr toad or uh, the legend of cp hollow in it is particularly of note because the entire thing is narrated by bing crosby he voices the entirety of sleepy hollow and it is wonderful and he sings and he speaks and it's just a really wonderful time that you have so if you haven't checked it out it's all on disney plus it's it's really short naturally i think it's only like an hour the whole movie but it's really worth checking out the legend of ichabod and mr toad it naturally has a more whimsical humorous look on the story but it is it's really entertaining and it's it's worth for bing crosby alone um, and then Sleepy Hollow is a story, is a film I'd seen a few times, the Tim Burton adaptation. I saw it a couple of times when I was much younger and when I was first get, really getting into movies and really getting into Tim Burton. Um, but I haven't seen it since. Um, and it's one of those ones I kind of don't want to watch because I worry it might be a lot worse when I rewatch it. But it's quite a, it's a departure in a lot of ways, or it's certainly a, a big fleshing out. But it's a really ripe story for Tim Burton, and it's still kind of when he gave a shit as a filmmaker and wasn't just handed 10, 20 million, 200 million to bloody, um, just a, a dap poorly, a Disney movie that nobody wanted. But this was when it was still all coming from his illustrations when everything was gnarled and anything that had curly trees and just dark gothic wonder was just what he was all over and it's one of his my preferred Johnny Depp Tim Burton performances as well that and the wonderful Ed Wood as well which I think is probably Burton's best movie because uh, Nightmare Before Christmas isn't even really like a Tim Burton movie in the same way that many of the others are because he didn't direct us you know um but it is just more his world and i think that's why nightmare is probably so good is he had to collaborate usually on it and collaboration is usually like a, a great thing especially for someone with such a wonderful uh, mind and uh, drive like collaboration can create real magic there but uh yeah let me know if you guys have seen it recently i don't know where you can watch it if that's available to watch if i do see it over the halloween season i might give it another watch but yeah it has johnny depp in that you have christina ricci um as katrina van tassel is love interest in it uh you have 
you have Christopher Walken as the Headless Horseman. Well, it has flashbacks to the Headless Horseman of like how he became headless. And it's a really bizarre Christopher Walken with mad Tim Burton hair and like sharpened teeth. And it is wonderful, wonderful stuff. I think is it Ray Park? It's Yeah, I think it's Ray Park who uh, does all the wonderful physical performances. He's Toad in um, the first X-Men movie and... He plays the twins in The Matrix Reloaded. He's Darth Maul, in, uh, or the body of Darth Maul in uh, The Phantom Menace. So an incredible acrobatic and physical performer. But I believe he plays the Headless Horseman, Sans Head. They didn't get Christopher Walken to come back in to shoot the Sans Head scenes. But those are, yeah, so before we move on, what was interesting about finally reading the story of C.P. Hollow is how ambiguous it is. Like, it really is a love letter to folklore and a love letter to ghost stories and how when we are on these dark walks home, like with last with our own Irish version of the Headless Horseman tale last week, when we are walking home, this is the time we remember these scary stories, when we're vulnerable and when it's dark and mysterious and we don't know what's going on. That's when the thoughts and the anxieties start to creep into our head. I love that that's what happens to Ichabod here, that he is superstitious anyway. You see he's made the notes in the in the books of of witchcraft and superstitions that he find that they find in his effects after he disappears but also that it is left ambiguous as to what actually did happen to him was he killed by the headless horseman did he just fall from his horse and run away was he killed by Brom Bones? Was Brom Bones actually the headless horseman? Because when it's happening to Ichabod, he doesn't see the head, but he sees the head on the saddle and the head coming towards him. But when we see the body or when we're told about the body, it is the pumpkin. And it's Brom Bones at the end, always smiling, having won his bride from Ichabod, from his rival smiling to himself and laughing whenever the story of Ichabod and the mention of the pumpkin comes. And that is probably, if more than anything, the true influence of Sleepy Hollow of this tale on the image of the Headless Horseman, because it is only really Sleepy Hollow that the image of head of the Headless Horseman has the pumpkin. The pumpkin is inherent to the story of this. And it's funny that the pumpkin has become arguably the the more famous image of a headless horseman, considering that the for the pumpkin to be involved almost is to imply that the horseman is a fake, if it isn't actually his head, but is this often flaming pumpkin in many tales. But I really enjoy, I hope that really came across how much I enjoyed reading that and getting to do such a big chunk of it. It's, I, I mean, still my favorite thing about doing this podcast is 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 the writing of them you know is the writing of the tales and the adapting of the tales and the creativity involved in that but this was this is also wonderful to see like something so marvelously well written that it stood the test of time and then just getting to really lean into the performance of it because that ultimately is what my my background is and what has been so that's a huge amount of fun but the final part of Fireside of Horror, so we've had two Headless Horseman tales. We've had our Death Coach and we've had uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. We're going to finish with a piece from the godfather of this podcast, uh, the great W.B. Yeats, whose book on fairy and folktale is basically where all of this came from and whose work has mentioned a huge amount to me. 
there'd be no garden sea at all if I hadn't loved Yeats so much growing up and gotten so much more into him when I was writing my own book as well. It was a huge part of the poetry course that I did over COVID. Um, but Yeats, the lesser discussed side of Yeats's life is that he was a madman into his magic. It was magic and his supernatural and he he was a member of the the golden dawn um this this very secretive order um and his most controversial and densest and weirdest work is called a vision which i did read or attempted to read as part of the poetry course and I like I was able to cipher through a lot of it because he actually talks about a lot of his uh, mythological and folkloric influences in it. So they were a nice window in and there's references to a lot of his poems. But in his epilogue to a vision, which which a vision was basically came to him. So his wife, um, Georgia, Georgie, yeah, Georgie Heidelis um, is the woman who. Yeats eventually married after fawning after Maud gone, his great muse for so much of his life, and then briefly going after her daughter, which was kind of weird. Then he eventually married Georgie, and Georgie, she basically talked to the spirits. So she had a window into the spirit world, and she would go into these trances for hours on end, and Yeats would dictate everything that he said, uh, that she said, or that the spirits conveyed through her. And whether this was she was a genuine vessel for the spirits or whether it was just something for them to do as husband and wife, it yielded incredible artistic results from Yeats. And in his epilogue to A Vision, he writes this incredibly appropriate, wonderful piece called All Souls Night. Incredible and a very appropriate piece to end this Halloween fireside of horror, which is an an older Yeats living for a little while as he did in Oxford and just basically sitting there contented that he seems to know something that we don't and sitting there at home with a glass of wine and as it is all souls night waiting to see what spirits may come all souls night Midnight has come, and the great church bell, and many a lesser bell sound through the room, and it is all souls' night, and two long glasses brimmed with muscatel bubble under the table. A ghost may come, for it is a ghost's right. His element is so fine, being sharpened by his death, to drink from the wine breath while our gross palates drink from the whole wine. I need some mind that, if the cannon sound from every quarter of the world can stay wound in minds pondering, as mummies in the mummy cloth are wound, because I have a marvellous thing to say, a certain marvellous thing none but the living mock, though not for a sober ear, it may be all that here should laugh and weep an hour upon the clock. Horton's the first I call. 
He loved strange thought and knew that sweet extremity of pride that's called platonic love, and that to such a pitch of passion wrought, nothing could bring him, when his lady died, anodyne for his love. Words were but wasted breath. One dear hope had he, the inclemency of that or the next winter would be his death. Two thoughts were so mixed up I could not tell whether of her or God he thought the most. But think that his mind's eye, when upward turned, on one sole image fell, and that a slight companionable ghost, wild with divinity, had so lit up the whole immense miraculous house the Bible promised us, it seemed a goldfish swimming in a bowl. On Florence Emery I call the next, who, finding the first wrinkles on a face admired and beautiful, and by foreknowledge of the future vexed, diminished beauty, multiplied commonplace, preferred to teach a school away from neighbor or friend among dark skins, and there permit foul years to wear, hidden from eyesight to the unnoticed end. Before that end much had she raveled out from a discourse in figurative speech by some learned Indian on the soul's journey, how it is whirled about wherever the orbit of the moon can teach until it plunge into the sun, and there, free and yet fast, being both chance and choice, forget its broken toys and sink into its own delight at last. I call MacGregor Mathers from his grave, for in my first hard springtime we were friends, although of late estranged. I thought him half a lunatic, half knave, and told him so. But friendship never ends. And what if mind seemed changed, and it seemed changed with the mind, when the thoughts rise up unbid on generous things that he did, and I grow half contented to be blind? He had much industry at setting out, much boisterous courage before loneliness had driven him crazed, for meditations upon unknown thought make human intercourse grow less and less. They are neither paid nor praised, but he'd object to the host, the glass because my glass. A ghost lover he was, and may have grown more arrogant being a ghost. But names are nothing. What matter who it be, so that his elements have grown so fine, the fume of muscatel can give his sharpened palate ecstasy. No living man can drink from the whole wine. I have mummy truths to tell, whereat the living mock, though not for sober ear, for maybe all that here should laugh and weep an hour upon the clock. Such thought, such thought have I that hold it tight till meditation master all its parts. Nothing can stay my glance until that glance run in the world's despite, to where the damned have howled away their hearts, and where the blessed dance, such thought, 
that in it bound I need no other thing, wound in minds wandering, as mummies in the mummy cloth are wound. How about that? That was All Souls Night by W.B. Yeats. And there's just, there's such an infinite amount there. Highly recommend reading it for yourself. I wouldn't have the expertise or the skill, or the articulation at all to even begin to delve into how much is there. But I just, I love, I love it so much for it just being an older man who has some crazy thoughts, you know, believes some things about magic and life and death, just sitting alone in his house with two glasses of wine and just inviting his dead friends to come. And he doesn't care who comes. Some of them may come, some of them may not. What does it matter? And he doesn't care if you believe him or not. He doesn't care if you think he's mad because he knows something that you don't and he gets to chat with his friends forever. And it being Halloween night, All Souls night, the night where the living and the dead, the night that belongs to the dead, and the palace of the dead being so sophisticated that they only drink the breath of a wine. They're not so base that they drink the whole glass. And to use that image to wind a mind like mummies in their mummy's cloth, with how much the idea of the image of a mummy has become associated with the contemporary idea of Halloween, but for Yeats to use it as this incredibly obscure, obtuse uh, simile or metaphor for uh, winding your own thoughts is just... My mind, I can't even begin. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, and ultimately, like, is not to get too, like, oh, the poetic genius of it all, but just, like, what an incredible presence to spend in, spend time in. What an incredible image conjured and seen and atmosphere more than anything because I think a poem like this people get too bogged down in interpretation rather just the the experience of of it like walking walking into this poem is like walking into an art gallery and just getting just hit by it it just let it let it let it enjoy the experience of the language of the scene of the image and what better way to finish a fireside of horror I hope you enjoyed part three. These were these. This was a lot of fun to do. It's very late at night, as appropriately as appropriately so. It's been very stormy and wet and windy all day today. I am about to drop, so I will wrap things up. This has been a bumper, basically double episode anyway, as they usually are. So I hope you've all stuck it out to the end. Hope you all enjoyed it. Um, that was our three pieces again. Were the Death Coach. Uh, first collected by T. Croft and Croker. We had The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving and All Souls Night by the great W.B. Yeats. Uh, give, drop me a message on Instagram or email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Message at firesidebard. Let me know your thoughts. Uh, share it on your story. Let me know if you're enjoying the podcast, this podcast, other episodes. Uh, buy my book, Garden Sea and Neo Myth of Home uh, from Head Stuff in paperback or from instantly on Kindle version on Amazon. All of the links are in the description below. Come along to the launch of Garden Sea um, next Thursday the at 7 p.m. Thursday, the 3rd of, of November at 7 p.m. upstairs in the Wicklow Town Library. Tickets are free. Uh, but limited, so book at Eventbrite. All of those links are in the description below. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. Remember, wherever you are, wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside of horror.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.